Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, we are in session 10 of our look at the book of Revelation. We're, this session is going to be kind of a, a summation, a, a culminating study of what we've learned about the way Christ views His church. And notice I use that phrase, His church. Not our church because it does not belong to us, but because we are under His Lordship. But again, before we do anything within either ministry or the study of His Word, we want to first go to Christ Himself through, through prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, as we approach Your Word, we do so in the spirit of awe and reverence because You have given so much to make it possible for our generation to have it, to learn from it, and to grow through it, to become better equipped to be the messengers of hope that You would have us to be. So again, open our hearts to the transforming power of Your Word and Your Spirit, Open our minds to be better equipped so that when we give an account for the joy that you've given us, Lord, that we do so in faithfulness and in truth. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So, getting back into this book, this is the revelation singular of St. John the Apostle, St. John the Divine and some of uh, your copies of God's Word. And in the very first chapter, he writes this curious phrase to us, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. And we're going to claim those promises tonight and throughout this study. Because again, of the 66 books of the Bible, penned by over 40 different authors through the course of several thousand years, this is the only one that says, read me. You will be blessed because you read me. Not only that, but reading aloud and hearing implies that we're studying it, that we're studying it together as one body. So we are in the section between chapters two and three, kind of recapping it and trying to discover how it applies to us today. These churches existed in the time of St. John's life, but they were local churches facing local church issues. And just as they were facing some issues, we still have those issues at play. And we're going to learn uh, through taking a look at those churches side by side this evening, what that we also still face of today and how Christ instructs us to handle those situations. So again, there are several different areas of meaning that we want to consider that are listed out. And on your notes for this session, your notes will come in two different sets. The first set is a standard group of notes with note lines like you're used to getting with the outline form on one side and, and an open uh, text for your journaling on the next. But there's also on our website highlandbaptistchurch.org, when you click on the Journey Through the Bible Revelation tab, it will take you to uh, those notes for all of these sessions. The second one is a block table 
that has each individual church, the translation of what, what the name means, as well as the prophetic insight of what era of the church's life, the capital C church, it supposedly goes along with. Again, I realize that's conjecturable, but I want you to, to get that for your own learning. Uh, what the title is that Christ chooses for Himself, what good He finds about this local church, what are the concerns that He has about the local church, the instructions that He has for overcoming their problems, and the promises that He has the heavenly reward on top of being a citizen of heaven, the heavenly reward He has for the overcomer. And speaking of overcomer, this is the way that the Bible defines what an overcomer is. Now we hear that phrase... The overcomer, the victor, he who wins. And we think about someone who under their own power, their own strength, or their own uh, courageousness, their own uh, intellect, someone who on their own overcomes a problem. But this is the way the Bible defines an overcomer or a victor. Because there's a lot of sports metaphors in here, and this is one. For this is what love God is. Uh, This is what love for God is. Excuse me while I put... My glasses on. To keep His commands, and His commands are not a burden. Because, and underline this in your own copy of God's Word, everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, even our faith. It is not what we do. It is what He accomplishes through us. Being faithful and reliant upon God's grace... God's goodness, God's love, God's salvation, God's providence. Because again, if we try to work on our own, under our own strength, under our own wisdom, under our own goodness, we'll fall flat every time. But it's through being reliant on Him to provide for us, to help us, to love us, and to get us through that we conquer, not on our own strength, but on His. So those who conquer, those who are victorious are those who are reliant and obedient to God. Many places in this book you hear the words, I know your works. These are the works that Christ is talking about. The four ministries found within the local church. Our ministry to God through worship. Our ministry to each other through discipleship and through fellowship. Our ministry to the suffering through missions. And our ministry to the lost through evangelism. Now, worship and discipleship often have a strange antagonistic relationship with each other. So does missions and evangelism, but that need not be so. If any of these are overbalanced, then it ceases to be a local church by definition and becomes more of a parachurch ministry. At the local church, all four of these ministries must be in place and they must be held in a sort of creative tension. If your church is all worship with no discipleship, then your people do not grow. They do not gain spiritual maturity. It becomes all about the emotion and nothing with the intellect. So a part of who we are is not fed. So that when we we gather together as believers, we become those uh, who are scattered among shallow soil. The roots do not grow deep. And when troublesome time comes, we don't know what to do because we do not develop the coping skills built into the Word of God, nor the wisdom to combat the things of this world. If we're all discipleship and no worship, things get stale, boring, dry. If we're all missions and no evangelism, 
Uh, yes, we're loving, we're compassionate, and we're kind, but no one comes to Christ. No one gets saved. No one gains the hope. If we're all evangelism and no missions, on the other hand, then we become judged as a habit, as, as from personal experience. Those who are all evangelism and no mission become all judgment and no love. All four must be present. All four must be held in balance. Here are some of the heresies of the local church that were also found within these seven letters. The heresy of legalism, which is a denial of grace, in effect. Subjugation of the body of Christ to the law of the Judaizers or to a new law, a new set of traditions, because we've always done it that way. You become a slave to your own habits. There's Arianism, which is a denial of Christ's divinity. He is more akin to a demigod in the same way that Zeus was to Hercules. Uh, he, there's Gnosticism, which, um, and I believe that a lot in the previous session, I actually uh, accidentally got these two confused. Arianism did not have its name by this time. That's where the confusion comes from. But if I say Arianism... It means a denial of Christ's divinity. If we're talking Gnosticism, we're talking about a denial of Christ's humanity. Christ was a floating spirit. Christ was a manifestation of God, which is, of course, not the case. We know that Christ, through the Word of God, is fully man and fully God as well. There's the uh, heresy of pluralism. The heresy of pluralism is the belief that you can be a Christian and it's okay to worship other gods as well or to welcome the ways of the world, idols and all, into the local church. And I threw in the Nicolaitans as well because that's, while it's not necessarily a theological heresy, it is a grave concern that borderlines on it because it is a, an abuse, a taught abuse, of church authority for the sake of political and personal gain, the building of personal influence. We can see the rise of the popes in this particular, uh, what I will call a heresy, as they gain, as they try to use their, uh, their religious authority to gain political strength. The text in each letter provides Christ's evaluation to his churches. This is what you're doing good, this is what you're doing bad. In effect, it's a report card. Uh, he includes issues as well as their solutions, and again, those remain with us today. These are not just the things of the past. And it's surprising how we don't get that. A lot of what we just went over in terms of heresies uh, still are with us today wearing new clothes and new titles, but it's the same thing that's been going on for thousands of years, just again with a new name. It also includes heavenly rewards for those that are faithful to the end, for those that uh, at the end of their life meet the qualifications for having overcome the challenges that are described in the local church. And something I want you to write down in your notes is the fact that if you are going through something similar to what's being discussed, the crown that is associated or the fruit of life or whatever the, the trophy is, you are likewise entitled to. If you overcome this problem, again, sports metaphors, Olympic metaphors, um, if you overcome this obstacle, this hurdle, you are entitled to a heavenly reward, a heavenly recognition. But that's in addition to salvation. You will get, if you are in Christ, 
if you are trusting in Him for your salvation and have earnestly repented of your sins, then you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The question is, when, he, when we talk about Him having the key of David and He opens the storehouse that He Himself guards, what is going to be left in there for you? What is going to be your sacrifice of praise that goes through the fire? What are you going to be able to return in thanksgiving when we kneel before the throne of the universe and cast our crowns at His feet? That is a, a, an image of sacrifice of praise. What We're not gaining to have recognition for ourselves. We're gaining to have something that we can yield in glory and glorify to God on top of salvation. Not working to be saved, but working because we are saved. I also want you to take a note at this. When we start examining our own churches, local churches, both here at Highline and forever, who else is listening? Um, there are drive, what are the driving forces within your church? And to tackle onto this metaphor, who's sitting behind the, drive, the, the steering wheel? Are your programs or traditions driving your congregation? As with Ephesus, are the preferences of your people determining the direction of your congregation? As was Laodicea. Is it a drive for numbers that causes you to compromise and let the things of the world into the church as it was with the church at Pergamos? Or is it the will of Christ? as it was in Philadelphia, in Smyrna. What is driving your church? That's ultimately what we're asking in these seven letters. So again, and this is probably the last time that I'll thrill you with the image of these maps. This is the area where the churches are located that John was ministering to. And this is roughly the pathway that the letter that the scroll containing his revelation, again singular, journeyed from that red dot there at Patmos Island to Ephesus, which is the first green, which is the green arrow, all the way to Laodicea, which is the red arrow. And if you'll notice, because of the river routes and the trade routes, this pathway really doesn't make a lot of sense. Because if, if you take a real hard look at it, um, Sardis really should have been the third because there was an existing really well-traveled trade route there. Or there could have been a split off that would have taken it straight to Laodicea. Why was Colossae, a burgeoning center of Christianity, not written to or Heliopolis? These seven churches, again, uh, it is contradictory, but it, not contradictory. It is, it is uh, supposed that there is a prophetic reason why they're in this order because they outline the, uh, the idiosyncrasies of the capital C church, the church throughout the world at different moments in her history. And we begin with the book of, Eph uh, excuse me, the letter to Ephesus, which was a reflection of the church immediately following the book of Acts. And this is a recap of the seven letters in brief. Ephesus means either the permitted one or the darling one. Again, a lot of these are really ancient words that predate Koine Greek. 
So this is the best that we can come up with, but please pay attention because there is a meaning to them. Darling one, the bride of Christ adorned for her husband. Uh, the title that Jesus uses is that the, he holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands. The stars are the messengers to the churches or the angels of the churches. The lampstands are the churches, meaning that he has authority over his church and he is also in the midst of them. He is ever present within them. His commendation for this church is that he knows their works and their labors. In other words, they are really active in ministry. Their programs are great. They have a program for everything. They have a, 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 a meal for every occasion. They are really good at organizing themselves. They don't tolerate evil. They test uh, the truth of their teachers. They have persevered in times of persecution. They hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which we've already gone over. And uh, But nevertheless, Jesus says, or that dreaded word, but, he is concerned about them because they have abandoned their first love. The first love that any Christian, much less any church, should always have is the love of God. What is the great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Love your neighbor as yourself, because they are made in his image. And love one another as Jesus has loved us. And with the promise that they outside the church will know that, that we are in Christ if we exhibit that love for each other. So his instructions to them is to repent, which literally means to change direction. Repent is an old English word that means if you're going one way, change the direction. In this way, change the direction of your life. Repent and return to that first love. Balance your priorities, in other words, by putting your relationship with God first. All doctrine, no devotion. So busy doing the kingdom work that they have no time to spend with the king. The promise to the overcover in this case is to be given fruit from the tree of life that, re that resides in the garden of God, the emblem of everlasting life. And then from there we journeyed to Smyrna, which literally means myrrh, which figuratively in this era means the scent of death because myrrh was an embalming agent. The title that Jesus gives of himself is he is the first and the last. He was dead but is alive again. Translation, he is God incarnate. He is the eternal one. He is the resurrection and the hope of our resurrection as well. His commendation is that he knows that they're in affliction. He knows that they're being persecuted. And he knows that they believe that they are poor. And the Greek word for poor there doesn't simply mean that they are longing for something. It means that they are completely destitute. But yet Jesus says that spiritually speaking, their treasures in heaven, they are what? Rich. But they're being persecuted by those who claim they are Jews, but are not. Persecuted, in other words, from the outside majority. Notice his concern for this church. He doesn't have one. This is one of two churches that Jesus has nothing bad to say about. His instruction to them is be faithful unto death. Be faithful all the way. Finish the course. Run the race. And he promises that after a period of 10 days, or as we've talked about, uh, a period of 10 kings over the Roman Empire, they will be rescued from this persecution. They will be victorious over it 
when we see the rise of Constantine the Great. And while they're undergoing this persecution, and this is a pattern that comes a lot in the churches, while they're in persecution, he will add no other burden to them because they're already, in this instance, found faithful. And his promise to them, as was promised earlier in scriptures as well, uh, the promise to the persecuted for Christ's sake is the crown of life. From there we went to Pergamum, which was the old capital of this area. Pergamum's name literally means the high place or tower or fortress. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's of note that when you talk about a high place, you're also talking about a place of idol worship, a place with an altar, which was built on top of a, a mountaintop. Christ uses the, uh, the title of himself, and that name has significance, I might add. The title Christ uses for himself is he who has the double-edged sword. The double-edged sword is what? It's the Word of God. The Word of God used for both instruction and judgment. His commendation to them is that they live where Satan's throne is. But even though they're in persecution, in intense persecution and temptation, many of them are holding on to Christ's name and not denying the faith. Again, we're talking the time of Caesar worship, where many who declared Jesus as the king and the God of Israel, his father, as the king of kings and lord of lords, they were being put to death for not taking five cents worth of incense and burning it in an altar dedicated to Caesar. So he knows their persecution. But he's concerned because many of them have uh, accepted the doctrine of Balaam, which means many of them have gone along with this Caesar worship. Uh, the doctrine of Balaam, as we've talked about earlier, means spiritual prostitution. It means that you may hold to one belief, but you are selling your services, selling yourself, opening yourself up to worldliness by including something else. Something that's idolatrous, something that is against the Word of God, something that is against God's Lordship in our lives. And there's also the Nicolaitans who are appearing here as well. So Jesus' instruction to this church is to repent, change direction again. Or he will come at them, he will fight them with the sword of this, the sword, the double-edged sword from his mouth. In other words, he himself will combat the lies with the truth and the challenges to his authority as Lord over his church. And he offers them a litany of promises to those that overcome this. A multitude of heavenly trophies waiting for them. The hidden manna, which is the bread of heaven, the provision of God himself. Uh, some speculate that it is a share of the, the manna that is hidden within the Ark of the Covenant. Others said that it's simply within the storehouse of heaven. You will be given a white stone with your name on it which, as we've talked about in this culture, means one of three things. From the Greek end of things, jurisprudence. If you, if you receive a white ball, you are found innocent. If you receive a black ball, you are found guilty. Or there was also a white marble stone that got you into the VIP seats into the arena with your name on it. It was used as a ticket. Or there was also a white marble stone. If you were in the games and you received the laurel crown, you also received a white stone with your name on it, which gave you permission as an invitation to go into the victor's banquet, which is another meaning that's, that would be very much at the forefront of these readers' minds. Now Thyatira. 
literally means daughter. It was renamed that by a conquering king. The title Christ uses for himself is the Son of God with the eyes of fire and feet of bronze, which speaks of his divine authority, his omniscience, that there is nothing that can be hidden from him, and his right of judgment. His commentations to this church is that he knows their works. In other words, their ministry, their, their agape, self-sacrificing love, uh, that they are faithful in their devotion to God, unlike Ephesus, and they are filled with faith. In other words, they're, they're, the majority of them are wholly reliant on God for His strength, wisdom, guidance, and provision. That they do acts of service and kindness, and that they are enduring fierce persecution as well. So this is an outstanding report card to this point. Unfortunately, they still hear that dreaded word, but... They tolerate that wicked woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, but is not. In other words, this church lacks church discipline, and any church that fails to discipline risks fracturing itself by allowing this same type of cancer to enter into the body of Christ. We'll talk about it in just a second. But this lady in the congregation has assumed an authority that is not granted to her by God. Uh, she is the source of internal persecution within the church. She is a source of paganistic teachings within this church. There's a reason why Christ uses the phrase Jezebel, because a lot of the type that she was in the Old Testament is reflected on this person in the New. She is being a false teacher, again claiming to be a prophet who is not, and who is inciting sexual immorality by being a um, a temptress within the congregation. Unfortunately, in the religious era of this time, that was that was highly normal. If you were practicing the religion of the Greeks, the religion of the Romans, more often than not, to earn money for its temple and the people who were at the temple or the oracles, there were temple prostitutes who worked at that temple. And she's taking what was the, from the old religion, the old immorality, and dragging it into the new. So Christ's instruction of this church is, as with the rest, repent. He promised, he basically says, because you did not discipline this person who is, who is infecting your church like a virus, I will personally. And he condemns both her, her children out of the adulterous relationships, and her followers. And he challenges those who are in the majority to remain faithful, or the remnant of the church, and that as they are being persecuted inside the church internally, he will put no other burden upon them. And he promises them a, a position of regal authority, of political authority within the kingdom, and an iron rod or an iron scepter, which offers them the power of judgment in the coming, when his kingdom uh, reaches the earth and he is able to assume the throne of his father David. Again, a political throne. Next to last, we have the city of Sardis. Sardis named after the gemstone, the Sardis stone, which literally means the little red ones, which at the time of this writing were considered worthless. They at one time were considered very precious, but at the time of John's writing here, a large cachet of them was 
found in the, uh, in the eastern part of Europe, and their value as precious gems plummeted, meaning that as Jesus points out, you had a name, but you are now worthless, you are dead. The title he uses of himself is that he has the seven spirits and the seven stars. In other words, he has the authority. He has the ability to place us on mission because he himself is a missional God, a mission-minded God. And for those who he puts into a position of ministry, he also provides for them. But I want you to notice the commendation that he has for this church. One of two churches that Jesus has nothing good to say about. He does have several concerns. You are a name, but you, you have a name. You have a reputation. People around the world know you, of you, but in reality, spiritually speaking, you are what? You are dead. You are all appearances with no substance. You're all confidence with no strength. You have the big building, but there's no one inside it, or at least there's no one doing any real ministry. You are all show no substance. So his instruction to them, just as your city has been conquered many times because no one cared to keep watching the watchtowers, you must be watchful, be alert, and strengthen that which remains. Before the whole body atrophies, draw strength before, while you still have diligent workers in Laodicea, excuse me, in Sardis. Be watchful against sin, be watchful against false teachings. But watch at the same time four opportunities to minister, to evangelize, to be mission-minded, to disciple one another, to have fellowship with one another, have opportunities to worship God extravagantly, rebuild the church spiritually. You may have a building that is really nice on the outside. Now rebuild on the inside in the hearts of your people, and watch with expectation, gleeful expectation, for the return of the Savior. The promise to the overcomer is that he will be granted white raiment, which is again a symbol of innocence and righteousness standing before God. His name will be written into the Lamb's book of life in a way that cannot be, in that the, the emphasis in that is once your name is in the book, it cannot be removed. And he will even declare your name. Names factor a whole lot in this particular letter. But your name as an overcomer will be declared before the angels. <clears throat> the church of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the friendly church. The title that Jesus has for himself is he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. Holiness means that he is pure, he is blameless, he is consecrated, and he needs for nothing. There is a heresy out there, and I will call it that, that claims that the reason that Christ came down is because God needed to know what it is to be human. God needs for nothing. He is holy. He was holy before the birth of Christ. He was holy after the birth of Christ. He remains holy to this day. God exists outside of time, and God created us, wrote the book on us. God needs for nothing. He is pure. He is blameless. All-sufficient. Even recorded in the Old Testament is all-sufficient. He stands, as far as truth is concerned, it is in the fact that he stands in opposition to falsehoods. 
And as the key of David, he is the treasurer of heaven. He holds the treasure in his hand. And just like the prime minister in, in, in this day, uh, at the key of David, as we talked about, was an Old Testament position defined by the prophets uh, that says both not only was he the treasurer, but he also acted as the prime minister uh, for the king over Israel, meaning that in order to get to see the king, you had to come through the person who held the key, who had that title. And Jesus declares of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's what he means. He gives this commentation. He knows their works and he sets before them an open door. And in the scriptures, an open door means two things. Open doors meaning that there's an opportunity to minister and there's an opportunity to be delivered from hardship. In this case, I believe both happen to be true for this church. I set before you a door that no one, that, that once I open will remain open and no one can close. No one can shut. You think that you have a little strength. Uh, you, you have a little strength, excuse me, but you have endurance. That's what Jesus is talking about. You have kept my word in times of persecution, even though you're being persecuted by Jews who are not and that Christ himself will be their defense and will come to their aid. And they will be kept from the time of the testing. I'll mention this here, just for your awareness. There, there are some commentaries out there that believe that, uh, if you'll notice the phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, there are some commentaries that believe if it comes in the body of the letter, or if it comes in the postscript, is the determination of who is in the great tribulation period and who is not. In other words, what kind of church reflecting of these seven will make it out uh, for the rapture and so on. I, I don't have a definitive evidence for that. I only mention it here so that you're aware that it's there. But let's continue. He has no concerns for Philadelphia. Nothing bad to say about this missional church. He instructs them to hold on to what they have so that no one can take their crown. So right now, they qualify for a victor's crown. At this moment in time, they are in the lead. They are running the course with perseverance. So hold on. Keep moving. Keep ministering in the name of Christ. Love your enemies. And again, as we talked about earlier, there was a significant Jewish population who numbered in the, the thousands in this particular city that was a source of persecution against this church. But because they did not return hatred for hatred, because they did not try to persecute their persecutors, those that were outside of the church who were persecuting the church became part of the church. Out of the agape love that this church demonstrated in time of persecution, because they would not fight evil for evil, but evil with love, those that were trying to hurt the church repented and became part of it. And out of it, this church blossomed. The promises to the overcomer, you will be a, temp a pillar in the temple of my God. And remember, this was an area prone to earthquakes. So what Jesus is telling them in their own language, with their own history, is that they would be a symbol for strength and they would be unmovable out of heaven. They would be written on with the name of God, the name of Christ, and the name of the New Jerusalem, meaning both possession of God and citizenship in His kingdom. Now normally citizenship, we think of citizenship 
as uh, you're born in that country, therefore you're a citizen of that country. But at this point in time, the position of your birth wasn't necessarily a guarantee of citizenship. Citizenship meant that within the boundaries of a certain nation or a certain empire in this case, that you had rights and privileges because of your family, because of a length of service, because of a particular boon that you provided for a kingdom. Uh, here in Jesus' case, he's just saying because you are part of the kingdom of God, you are claimed and you have full rights because you are a joint heir with Jesus himself. Lastly, Laodicea. Probably the most scathing rebuke of any church in the New Testament. Laodicea literally means the justice of the people, meaning the rule of the people. Jesus uses the title of himself, I am the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. In other words, Amen meaning true or truthful. He is the keeper of all truth. He is the verification or the fulfillment of the promises of God, fulfilling still. He is the witness to every covenant made in Scripture, including the one that we are under today, bought with His own blood. Notice the good things that Jesus has to say about this particular church. The church where the people reign. He has a whole lot of concerns about them, though. Ignore Ephesus. That was, that was my mistake. This is Laodicea. His concerns about them were that they were not reliant on God. They were proud. They were lukewarm, meaning useless. Cold water refreshes, warm water relaxes, or it cooks. But he tells them that because you are lukewarm, you are worthless, I will vomit you out of my mouth so that you, by your very existence, are robbing the body of Christ of health. You are destitute in the eyes of the kingdom. You think you are rich, but you are destitute. You are spiritually blind. Remember, there was an eye salve produced by a school of medicine here. You think that you are clothed in fine raiment, but you are naked, and in other words, ashamed before the Lord your God. You are wretched, meaning that you might be toiling, you might be doing some work, but because you are not regenerate, you claim that you are a church, in other words, and that you are a gathering, an organization, but there is no repentance in you. There is no lordship of Christ to be found within you. There is no regenerate person among you in possession of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you wouldn't be the way you are. And as we've talked about several times before, if you do not have the Holy Spirit in you, you cannot fulfill the desires of God. So you work in vain. You're pitiful in that the rest... Look down upon you. All because in your pride you've placed your personal preferences above the Lordship of Christ. So he instructs them in all of these idioms that you see here. Talk about be saved by my gold. Do the works of the kingdom instead of on your own power. Repent. Wear white instead of the black glossy wool that you're wearing right now. Use my eye salve. Gain the Holy Spirit so that you have spiritual sight and are no longer blind. I stand at the door and knock. Christ is outside 
of this church. If anyone opens the door, apparently that doorknob's on the inside, if anyone opens the door for salvation, then I will, I promise that I will have a relationship with that person. I will offer that person communion. I will offer that person salvation. And the promise that he makes to this overcomer as all who are saved is everlasting life. Sit on the throne of Christ. Remember again, this is, this is, excuse me, this is a political throne, as we've talked about. This is the throne promised to him by the angel. To Mary, that he would gain the throne of his father David. Right now, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but he has another throne that he is promised as an inheritance that he has not yet sit on. And the person who overcomes in Laodicea is promised a regency under Christ to be able to sit on his throne in the coming kingdom. Really quickly, I'm going to go over, and I realize that we started late due to technical difficulties, uh, but I'm going to go over other teachings that Christ has for His church in brief. And what I'd like for you to do, in your, in your notes, especially on the chart, you'll see underlined themes throughout these letters that echo the other teachings of Christ throughout the New Testament. I want you to pay particularly close attention to those. How does your church, how does our church, local church, stand up to this test. To these understandings of what the church is, how do we stack up to what Christ writes, what Christ teaches, and what is found in other places in the Bible? So here are, in brief, other teachings about the church. It's founded under the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Upon this rock I will build my church. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the confession of Peter. Jesus himself is the head of the church, as written by Paul in Colossians. The church itself is, is, Jesus, is the reason Jesus gave his life. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Self-sacrificial love for which he gave himself. He loved it and gave himself. He loved her and gave himself for her. If you have that kind of that kind of passionate love for your wife and your wife has that kind of passionate love for you, you will never have an issue. You you as the bride of Christ are the reason for his sacrifice. Every church is equipped for a variety of ministries through the giftedness of the Holy Spirit. He does not give the gifts of the Spirit are not imbued to everybody evenly or equally. Every person has a different function within the four basic ministries of the church. And it is our job as members of the church to find which ministry that we are equipped for and get into it. But everybody has at least one spiritual gift. And it's our duty, our responsibility, just as the, the parable of the talents, to take it and to use it. We are to live in contrast to the world. For as long as it's existed, the church is supposed to live counter to the culture that it is in. The culture, at any time that the church exists as a corporation entity, I'm not talking about the legal protection here, I'm talking about the attitude. 
I'm talking about the strive after numbers, the strive after charts, the things that mean, uh, that mean, that matter outside of the church do not and should not matter inside the church. The church should be about the growth of the kingdom, true, but it should also be about the growth of the maturity of the people that are already attending. It should live in contrast to the world. It should live as a family in continuous fellowship. That's what the book of Acts taught us when it said that they gathered together, they broke bread together, they had all things in common, that they were united as a community of believers and they saw each other as family. It didn't matter what their last names were when they came together. They were one. They are a chosen people, a royal priesthood called out from among the nations to be the ambassadors of God, in first, in, in, according to the disciple Peter. That the members of the church are supposed to always be ready to give an account of the hope that is within them or the joy that is within them. Meaning that part of our responsibility as a member of any local church is to be ready, willing, and able, discipled, so that we can share our faith and know why we believe what we believe to our own satisfaction so we can talk about it with others. That we are supposed to gather frequently and even more often as we see the day of the Lord approaching. There are many out there that are under the mistaken uh, belief that church attendance is not commanded within the Bible. Right there it is. Hebrews 10.25, mark that down in your Bibles, put it on your websites, share it on Facebook. We are commanded by God through the writer of Hebrews that we are to spur one another to good works in worship, in discipleship, in fellowship, in missions, and in evangelism. We are to spur one another to good works, to meet often... Not, not, not denying the gathering ourselves or rebuking or forsaking, but as we see the day approaching, as we see the day of the Lord that we're going to talk about in the next few sessions as we continue in this book of prophecy, we are supposed to increase our attendance at church. That every time the door is open, every time that there's a, 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 a discipleship opportunity, every time the word of God is broken open for us, just like bread at the table, we're to be together. That is commanded here in Scripture. And above all, the great commandment that Jesus himself gives to the church in the gospel according to John chapter 13 is that you love one another as Jesus himself loves you. With the promise that they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Because of time constraints, I'm going to get into explaining a little bit about the kingdom parables, and then we'll come back next session, and we'll talk a little bit more about what Christ has to say about the church. Because I believe that you'll find, especially in your notes where you've got those underlines on that chart with the seven churches, pay attention to the themes, because what Jesus is talking about in them is still very much with us to this day. And they are echoed again and again through the course of Scripture, especially here in Matthew 13. But really quickly, I'm going to go over why kingdom parables, what, why parables are important for us, what they include. And as your preparation for next Wednesday, I would like for you to read and read twice Matthew chapter 13. And it's just kind of a primer. 
uh, the disciples came up and asked him. He, he was, ever since he was accused by the Pharisees as casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub, in other words, in the name of the devil, he starts transitioning the way that he does ministry. And he, he starts ministering almost exclusively in parables. And the disciples are asking him why. Why are you speaking to them in these parables? And Jesus answered, Because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. Now that seems backwards. In fact, when I was in church, I was often taught that a parable, which was often defined as, as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, was meant to make simpler the things of God. But Jesus himself explains right here in Matthew 13 that the polar opposite is true, that they are intended to keep the things of God clear to the believer, but not to the unbeliever. Meaning that before you can truly understand what's going on in the parables, you must be a regenerate Christian, meaning you must be under the influence of who? Of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever, the, the currency that Jesus is talking about here is the truth of the word of God. This has often been misquoted to have something to do with money, but he's talking about the truth of scripture here. Whoever does not have even that he has will be taken away from him. And again, that's, that causes us to scratch our heads. Why would he want to pull understanding from somebody? Verse 13, that is why I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says you will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and you will look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous, their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn their back and I and turn back and I would heal them. In other words, there there is there, there is a point where they have grown so callous, so hard-hearted that Jesus' direct ministry at this point will not be effective. Verse 16: Blessed are your eyes because they do see. In your ears because they do hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people it longed to see the things that you see, but didn't see. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. How Moses would have longed to hear the voice of Jesus. So why parables, really quickly? First is so that the believer may understand the truths of God. And as we're going to see the kingdom parables have to do with the church on earth, but not the unbeliever. The guidance of the Holy Spirit is required to have the spiritual eyes to see and the spiritual ears to hear. Truth is given to the believer, and here's the big one that, that came at the beginning of the passage that we just read, because the believer is being judged for what they choose to do with it. If you have some truth more will be given to you. If you have little, it can be taken away. Why? But what do we do with the truth that we have? I believe that not all, but I would think that a good chunk of the denominational fractures that we have going on in our world right now have to do 
with being in possession of some of the truth, but substituting our own preferences for spiritual realities. Choosing what I want the Scripture to say versus what it actually does. What I know through the Holy Spirit is actually present in, in, in the gospel love and compassion, but I want to insert myself in there instead. That's where we see a lot of fracturing over what the Bible means because we are not reading the Scripture, but we're trying to read around the Scripture. Do we proclaim the truth that we have been given or do we withhold it? I think that a lot of our churches, especially today, uh, because we did not stand our ground, because we decided to become something of a religious punching bag, because we did not make a difference when we had the opportunity to make a difference, the truth was withholding from us. Do we proclaim it or do we sit silently? All that evil requires in order to succeed is for good people to do nothing. Do we teach sound doctrine? Do we willingly choose false doctrine even though we know it to be false because that's the way we've always done it? Do we offer learning in our discipling? Or do we just strive for that emotional high, as I've heard it called, only? What is the point of who we are? What do we do with the truths, the truths that we find in the Word of God? Do we do as God would desire from us? Do we dig our roots deep? Or do we become the fair weather believer and allow the sun to dry us and the wind to blow us away? What do we do with the truth as it's been given to us? And Heavenly Father, as we, become, as, we, as we come before you, Lord, to continue on this, this look at this, this organization that is also a... It's not just an organization, Lord. The body of Christ, the bride of our Savior, this holy gathering that is also the family of God, grafted on to the, the, the covenants of those that have gone on before us. Help us to better understand our place in the here and now before we journey into the hereafter. Help us to receive it with open hearts. And as we come to your throne to be examined, instruct us that we may repent of that which holds us back, that we may embrace and implement that which will lead us forward, that in all things, you are the Lord of this church. Guide us as you will. Open our hearts to your will. Forgive us for the times that we've substituted ourselves when you were on the throne. Command us Strengthen us and send us forth with thine blessing. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. 
We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.